Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 59.5, Haunted Mansion with Cat Cressida. I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me, as always, is Mr. Brian P. Miles, coming in from Philadelphia. How are you doing tonight, Brian? Greetings and salutations from the city of brotherly love. How's it going there today? It is, uh, it's not as steamy as it has been the last few days. We had some heavy rain last night that broke the heat. Nice, nice. Yeah, we had a nice uh, sea breeze come in the other day, too, which, which our friend in Tampa, Mr. Hal Bowers, you know a lot about sea breezes being on the ocean, practically. Aloha, yeah, I do. Although, boy, it's hot right now. <laughs> but it's July, so that's fine. It's, that's what it is. So, how uh, I'm going to let you introduce our guest, who has a lengthy list of credits. So we don't have time to go through everything, but there's obviously a number of them that uh, our fans are going to be interested in hearing about, both uh, at the parks and other Disney aspects of their intellectual property and such that she's worked on. And they will no doubt have heard or will hear her voices in the parks. Um, so, how I'll let you do the honors and uh, give a little background and welcome Cap to the show. Yeah, we're gonna we're just gonna sort of hit the highlights, hopefully. So, if you spend any time around a television, a radio, a video game console, or inside a Disney theme park, anytime in the last twenty years, you have probably heard tonight's guest, a talented voice artist. She's appeared in a variety of roles across media, including DD on Dexter's Laboratory, ESPN's Pardon the Interruption, two new series, uh, one from DC uh, called Doom Patrol that's on HBO Max, and a new show from the creators of Rick and Morty called Solar Opposites. She's won a Grammy Award for her uh, work as a narrator on the Walt Disney Records Storing Tally series. She's Electra in Marvel video games, uh, Princess Leia in Lucasfilm video games, Bloody Mary from Telltale Games, The Wolf Among Us. And of course, in the Disney parks, she's done a variety of roles, but probably the, the three that you know the best are Little Girl Lost in the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. And that's probably one of all of our favorite attractions. Um, she appears as Jessie in all kinds of Disney park shows and attractions worldwide. And I'll tell you, she really nails that voice. I cannot tell the difference between Joan Cusack and her when she does it. So I've, I'm blown away by that. Um, but probably the most well-known thing that she does, and the reason that we are here tonight, uh, is her role as the, uh, the attic bride, Constance Hatchaway, uh, which premiered at 2006 in Disneyland and then at 2007 in Walt Disney World. And uh, so please let us welcome Cat Cressida. Ooh, I'm going to applaud you, Howard. You, you nailed that. That was fantastic. <laughs> so, so welcome to the show. And uh, one of the reasons that we have you here, besides just the fact that you are a delightful person to talk to, is uh, when you were uh, prepping to be the Attic Bride, 
you did a deep dive into the history of the Haunted Mansion that I think our listeners will be fascinated to hear about. So uh, can you tell us a little about the the prep work that you did and and maybe how you got involved with the role? Well, I will be thrilled to. And I'm going to add something to the credits that you'll probably be like, oh, I can't believe I forgot to mention that. But of course, my father worked with Imagineering uh, when I was growing up, which is pretty much an awesome (laughs) first credit um, that I can't take credit for, but certainly uh, let's just say I was indoctrinated into the culture from a very early age. So um, from about the age of one on, we were schlepping down to Disneyland a couple times a week, um, both during the week and and on the weekends. And then uh, once I was in school, then on pretty much every weekend, and he would have meetings to discuss design and Part of the reason was because um, Imagineering had really kind of hit a, a stall during the uh, you know late 60s and early 70s for the obvious you know heartbreaking reason that Walt was no longer around and uh, the park uh, Disneyland was really struggling to figure out what its next stages were going to be what what it was going to be doing and of course so much energy was being put into um, completing the Florida project and uh, Walt Disney world that it, it was a very, it was a very challenging time for uh, Imagineering in general spread, spread too thin in some ways and not enough um, fresh takes and um, magic being poured into it. And so there was a lot of focus on how do we, how do we bring Disneyland to the next, you know, into the next stage uh, now that we're launching a park across the country, what are we going to do here? And so he was a part of a lot of the marketing campaigns and discussions. And therefore, I was really honored to be around the Imagineers a lot. That's cool. Um, and, and you also worked briefly as a cast member. Well, I don't know if it was briefly, but I understand you also worked as a cast member. <laughs> yeah. Yes, which is kind of cool to be able to say, because I didn't come up with this. I, it may have been you or somebody recently in the past year actually said out loud, so you're probably the first cast member on record to go from being a, a cast member in the parks to being a famous Disney character in a ride, hmm. lead character in a ride. And I guess that's probably true. I can't really think of anybody else who started out as a cast member and then became a famous character in an attraction. Yeah, that's cool. That and, you know, that's a neat legacy. It's, it's, uh, it's always interests me how many, a bunch of Imagineers like Tony Baxter, you know, worked in the park famously as a popcorn salesman or something, and then got into Imagineering. Um, we've had Not other... popcorn, ice cream. Ice, ice cream. cream. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I wasn't going to correct great. him. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget, Steve Martin didn't make it, right? He was selling, uh, wasn't Steve Martin the selling? Magic new... the Ma- yeah, magic and, and, and selling newspapers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the print shop. So, yeah. Well, he had... He's obviously done something wonderful with life, but I don't. Oh, think true, he absolutely. He's <laughs> become yeah. a famous banjo like player. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's one of my favorites. He's incredible, but it, but, uh, but I don't think he became a character in a ride. No, per se. But that's how maybe uh, prophetic that you started out almost doing voiceover on the the storybook canals. <laughs> And then, you know, yeah. years later, parlayed that into uh, more voiceover work. I always joke that was my first professional voiceover gig where someone paid me, <laughs> even though I got in trouble a lot. 
it, it still was my first professional job. <laughs> <laughs> I got two pink slips. Oh, really? Do, do, are we yeah. allowed to ask why? Um, I was mischievous even back then. And I felt that it was very important that the script flow and the spiel be uh, enjoyable. So I would often tweak it. And uh, that wasn't really, that wasn't smiled upon. And also if we got stalled, which happened a lot where we had to just stop because the canal was so crowded, um, you know, trying to fill every boat on a hot summer's day. If we were just sitting there, I would improvise and share Disney trivia that I knew from my dad and from uh-huh. all my, and uh, that also was discouraged. So oh, um, I'll never apologize, but I did get two pink slips. So. <laughs> I think, I think my guests were happy. Yeah. And I think, um, I think your credentials were, were certainly higher than most cast members with your dad's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> with your dad's history. So. Yes. But you know, there are rules. And uh, there were fascinating rules back then, by the way. I, I don't know if all of them apply, but of course, there's the famous ones back back in the day. No, no facial hair. No, right, you know, right. earrings had to be a certain type. Makeup had to be a certain color on women. Um, you could get in trouble if your lipstick color was off. Um, and panties had to be cotton. You couldn't have silky. You couldn't have silk or anything else. It had to be pure cotton. Huh. How, who would, would someone know? know? <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's bizarre. <laughs> Very odd. I think now, it had to do something with uh, hygiene, that, mm. that it was like the most absorbent and kept uh, everything cleaner. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. But you're right. Like, how would they, are they going to strip search me? I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's bizarre. <laughs> and how, how long did you, how long were you on Storybook Canal? Uh, I just, Howard was correct. So I basically one whole summer, oh, which summer. Okay. was magical. Um, basically about three and a half months. And then, so I was already at UC Berkeley when I did. And then I came back for a, a couple of Christmases to cover, new, you know, New Year's or whenever they needed extra, extra people to help with the crowd control or whatever. So, um, yeah. And I, my, my first big summer crush love was uh, Jeffrey from uh, the Disneyland All-American College Band. Oh, very, very sweet. So wherever you are, Jeffrey, hope you're doing well. Yeah, you blew it. <laughs> you could have had her. <laughs> oh, I think it was me that he, Jeff, Jeff was from Texas. And uh, I ended up going, spending a couple of weeks with him in Fort Worth, Texas. And I think that was enough for me. Oh, okay. I was like, yeah, I'm an L.A. girl. I don't think I can hack Texas. <laughs> So all of her exes actually live in Texas, Hal. <laughs> Texas. Not all. <laughs> okay, so getting back to your question, Howard, which was... Yeah, so getting back to the mansion, it's like, how did you end up getting involved, I guess, first with that project? Sure. So um, Imagineering uh, has a few casting people who um, basically are in touch with all the top agencies in town, and they would have casting calls for various things always very confidential. You didn't really know what you were reading for. And um, back in the day, you would go into Imagineering. Now you just record everything either from your home studio or from your agency uh, because technology has shifted so much. But back then it was, um, you'd go in. And I had already done a few things. I'd actually already done like four projects, four or five projects for uh, Imagineering. A couple of them were scratches 
uh, scratch meaning temporary tracks that you lay down just so that the Imagineers have something to put in to time to and to see if that's the tone they want to go with. Ah, okay. And um, I'm trying to remember, like my, I think my very first thing for Imagineering, oh, I know what it was. It was, um, it was like a group of us, top, all top voice men who were my heroes. And I was like the random female. And it was for Sinbad's Voyage. Yeah, the Disney Sea show. Okay. I, I think that's what it was for, like a scratch version. And we did a bunch of Walla. And they basically described what we were doing for the Walla, for the background conversation as, think Pirates of the Caribbean, but Middle Eastern. So we were all just trying to stay within that sound or vibe or feel for that. And that was just a big group of us grouped around different microphones, um, throwing out random things. And um, so it was like a loop session, really, technically. Then the next thing that I did was another loop session. And that was the one that was burned forever in my brain as a a life-changing moment because I got placed next to Pete Renaday. And, um, and when they introduced me to him, I literally fell to my knees in genuflection. I was like, (laughs) I was just so blown away. And, um, we did the binaural sound conversations for the very interesting version of, um, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, where they were experimenting with binaural sound. Oh, wow. Which I think okay. only lasted for a couple of years. How, how did they so do that, that in the park? With, did, how, did they just do that with speakers? Or? No, they put headphones yeah. on. Oh, so everybody they put, headphones put a headphone on. on. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. It's crazy. But I guess they were trying to just keep it relevant and fresh for the time. Mm. And then um, after that, then we did a, an attraction which lasted in California Adventure for about a heartbeat. Um, Superstar Limo which hopefully none of you ever went on. Oh, I've, watched, <laughs> that, I've watched the video. Okay. So originally the, the narrator was going to be a female who was kind of like a valley girl. Like, oh my God, check it out. Look, it's over there. <laughs> that was the first <laughs> version of that. Very California was what they were aiming for. And uh, that, got, that got replaced. And then, um, and then after that, I got brought in to do Scratch for an attraction that they would not tell me what it was for, but it was to be um, a homage to classic Twilight Zones. Um, I did not even know that there was an attraction based on the Twilight Zone. Because again, this was like, that's what I'm saying. It's like during yeah. the 90s. Florida is a whole nother world. Yeah, Cal- California Adventure California. was 2001. So you would have been doing that in and 2000. Yeah. <laughs> right. And computers weren't what they where you can just Google things or, and um, so I really didn't know. And what they said was that they were upgrading something and they were playing around with a new version of, and that's all I got told. And then we, they threw out a couple of different famous, iconic uh, female characters from different twilight zones. And um, because I guess they really were experimenting as to which, which episodes they might be homaging in the queue line. So we did a couple of, different characters, female characters with famous iconic lines. Um, I, I remember recording Room for One More, Honey. Room for One More, Honey. It's very famous. Punchline, twist to the gut. Um, <laughs> the Newment line from one of the Twilight Zones. Anyway, so we recorded a bunch and then, of course, did the the singing and the 
scared little girl and then found out that it was going into Tower of Terror. And then eventually it got put into the Florida one, although I don't know where uh, or how. I guess it's probably still mixed in with the the new Q music that they had done around that time. Whenever they do something, in general, whenever they do something at Disneyland that either is a new attraction at at Disney Park but was already in Florida or Disneyland's taking the lead on and eventually will go to Florida, somehow the sound elements, they try to normalize it so that they're at least identical in terms of a lot of the production elements. So um, even though it was already around, my understanding is that it got put in there as well as the one, where's the other Twilight Zone Tower of Terror? It's over overseas. Uh, Yes. And uh, isn't there one in, um, is there one in Paris? There is. I rode the one in Paris. Yeah. So she's there too. Yeah, it's over at yeah. the, the studios over there. Yeah. So that was kind of, I was doing that kind of work. And that's honestly how the, the bride came along was that it was a, um, a casting call. And initially they wanted the same they were going to cast one actress to be both the face and the portraits as well as the voice. And then um, I don't want, I don't don't want to say anything that would sound negative, but I think it became clear to them during that initial phase of casting that if they didn't really find focus on a voice talent for the voice, that it probably wasn't going to be as strong as they were hoping for. Because they, the girl, the girl had to be in her twenties and adorable and beautiful and kind of all-American looking. But if you're, you know, it's a different casting pool if you're going for on-camera versus voiceover. So at some point, very early on in the process, they made the decision to then cast the voice. But what fascinates me is you actually went beyond just showing up for the session. You you decided you need to do a deep dive into uh, into the character and the history? Well, the research that I did wasn't until I got cast because they didn't tell me what I was, even throughout callbacks, we didn't know what we were oh, wow. reading for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they keep everything very confidential. Um, all that they would tell me was that it was for a classic, think, you know, think classic Disney attraction. It's pretty much all that, that we knew. So... Um, the research really came in when it was callback, final callback. And I think the casting director leaked to me what it, you know, what it probably was. And then I did some research and I, I think I told you this story that I managed to scare the hell out of myself while doing the research. Like I pulled an all nighter (laughs) listening to recordings of the mansion and diving deep into what I could find on the internet in 2006 um, in terms of mansion, more mansion history than what my father had already uh, told me and basically got into that weird hazy place where you're just you know you're sleep deprived so everything's far more everything and managed to basically pull an all-nighter and scare myself silly and then maybe that put me in the right mindset for the for the callback <laughs> but that's what I did and then once I actually was lucky enough to um to be cast then I then they really threw a lot at me in terms of um, learning the history, the backstory of the bride. So I got to learn a lot, a lot. Um, 
so the the history of Constance was pretty well charted out because they had, they knew that they they needed different husbands and they would have to have people be able to play, you know play those for the photography for the gags where the heads disappear. Um, so that one probably was surprisingly kind of laid out for you, like like you said. Um, wh- what did you find? You know, was there something that you found particular inter- in particularly interesting about that character when you did her? Or, you know, and it's cool if it was just another job, <laughs> like that's fine too, because certainly you're professional and you, your job is to show up and, and do what you're supposed to do. Um, but was, the, was there a hook to the character that you particularly found interesting? Well, first of all, anybody who knows me knows that if I'm lucky enough to book a role in a Disney park, there's no part of me going, eh, it's just another voice job. <laughs> I mean, that's like, <clears throat> that's huge, you know, to be able to participate and it's such a huge honor so um there was no part of me that was taking it for granted as I've already shared I obsessed over the callback um to the point where I scared myself silly but um beyond that I I guess it is your question specifically because it sounded like there were two separate questions in there so I'd love to I want to make sure I'm answering the right question so what specifically sure so I guess I guess my question would be, was there something about Constance, uh, some niche or part of her personality that you you found attractive that you were able to hook onto in order to oh, really get a grip on the it, character? Yeah. Um, well, Chris Gooseman, who was the uh, senior producer of this particular um, you know new iteration of the attraction, was lovely, and she um, said, you know, she's going to be very playful. And um, we definitely want her to feel like she belong. She always has been a part of the mansion. We don't want it to feel like it's so current and contemporary that suddenly there's this new presence that's jarring. Uh, so that, and I think it worked because there's a lot of people I met who can't remember a time there wasn't the bride, but their memories is just playing tricks on them. Because of course, when they were kids, she wasn't there. There was you know, what we like to joke is the Smurf bride and various iterations <laughs> of a mannequin stuck in the back, but um, their mind kind of retroactively puts her in much earlier than she was. But that was the big thing was make sure that she feels very much a part of the mansion, which also meant there should be a wink and a nod to other voices within the mansion. So it feels like it all came from the same time, which of course was the late sixties. And so, um, there was a lot of thought to that more so than you may, you know, think because there, there is a certain uh, cadence and pitch and um, eloquence to how all of those voices are in the mansion. A lot of the classic Disney voices, of course, were famous radio or stage performers and, um, and doing a theme park was definitely new work for them because it didn't exist when they were growing up. So um they brought a lot of their skill sets from radio and the stage to what they did. So anyway, that was a a big part of what her voice and personality would be and her mischievousness because she, she's a very unique as a character. I can't really think within the proper Disney parks of a character that's as blatantly evil. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. I mean, she's, other than she's, like the I mean, Wicked Witch or in Snow White or something. I mean, she's, yeah. But at the same time, I kind of feel like fans kind of root for her too at the same time, you know? 
Oh, they do. I can't even tell you how many people say that they admire her and she's like their hero. And I'm like, really? A murdering, you know, homicidal <laughs> sociopath? That's your, it's, it, I mean, it's lovely. It's a compliment. But if you really think about it, and I'm, I'm saying this with a sense of humor, of course, because, you know, they, they did a beautiful job with her, but she's a very evil character. There wasn't a character before her in the mansion that was that evil. And, um, but yet she's done with such a delightful spin that with such a sense of humor that it falls into that lovely zone between, you know, what Raleigh was doing and, you know, that age old tension in the mansion that is it's funny, is it scary? She walks right. that line very, very well. And, um, she's so delightful. You forget that she's just in, you know, cold blood murdered all of her husbands just so she could get wealthier. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, that's definitely a major attribute of hers is she's mischievous and they, they described it. This isn't my description, but what, what Chris said was they were looking for a voice that would attract, you know, every man that a man could not resist. She would be like a siren and some, there was be something alluring, something delightful, something charming that every man could find something in her to fall in love with. So that was the goal. And that's obviously a tall order. So who knows if I got anywhere close to that, but that was sort of what they were envisioning for her voice. And, um, and during the, (laughs) during the callbacks, when I was actually given the lines, which were just wedding vows. And again, I didn't know what the character was going to be or what it was even where, where it was going to fit within the Disney universe, so to speak of the parks. Um, that was really interesting. I mean, if you think about it, just be handed wedding vows and be told, do something with that. (laughs) Make it interesting. Um, And you're like, "Um, okay. And so mischievous, put a little twist at the, I remember someone saying, put a little twist at the end of it. So when you get to the last part of each vow, do a little twist with it. And somehow within that, I gradually fell into playing around with it so that I was giving it a mischievous, dark spin to the end of each one and that was the right thing to do apparently here comes the bride for better or for I was one of those people, by the way, who even while I felt like pinch me, I can't believe I just booked a role. I can't believe I'm going to be a voice in the classic Haunted Mansion. I mean, that that's an impossibility because it was already done before I was born. So how how does that happen? And uh, and such a great character, you know, not just a supporting background Walla character, but a lead character. And yet there was a big piece of me that was terrified they were going to screw it up. Like, what are they going to do to my mansion? What are they going to do? What could they, you know, this could go very bad. And so um, I definitely was one of those people. And um, 
there was that feeling in general, I think, about it. I think that's why there was so much research and discussion was how do we make her feel seamless like she's a part of the mansion? Does that make sense? Yeah. So. that's that, Actually, you brought up a really good point earlier about the cadence and stuff because I, I don't think you ever got to see this, cat. but when they redid um, Pirates in the mid-1990s here in Florida uh, to make it a little bit more politically correct, when they redid the audio for a couple of the pirates, it really stuck mm-hmm. out like a sore thumb. Like Ooh. the way it was not just in what was said, but even in the production of it, uh, it, it was so crisp and digital compared to all the old recordings. You know, it just, it really felt out of place. So I'm going to have to, like you said, I don't think people do realize how much work went into making it seamless and, and like it was always there. Because when it is not, it really does stand out. Yeah, it can. It's, it's definitely, I mean, the, the craft of voiceover is, is one that I just always get a kick about how, how much you have to pay attention to that nobody else cares about. <laughs> because it's like they won't notice it if you do it right. But if you do it wrong, you're, it's definitely noticeable, far more than, than a lot visually sometimes. But to, to all of your points, and all of you are making great points, um, yeah, there, there was a lot of concern over what, whether or not the character would work. Um, I, I probably was too dumb happy to give it much thought beyond, God, I hope they don't mess up the mansion. But I probably should have been worried about other things, which thank God in hindsight, I didn't have to worry about too much. I mean, there's, there's definitely people who don't like um, the changes they've made. But thankfully, she's become a character that so many have embraced. And I don't know if you men know this, but I'm happy to say that she's the number one female cosplayed Disney Park character oh, in the whoa. world. Oh, that's awesome. People really like those bloody axes and those veils, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say there's, there's definitely been, uh, and Brian, I've, I don't think we've talked about this on the show, but there's definitely the attitude of Halloween over the course of the time from when we were kids where it was mostly light and fun and innocent and a few witches and some spooky ghosts to definitely a more shift into the gory things. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. yeah. And, I, and you know, I attribute that to social media that as people have seen these Hollywood uh, Halloween parties that are the, the elaborate and then people sharing their costumes and the small parties became big parties. Now it's become big events. So even in the parks, uh, the Halloween party, which was a couple nights, has now become three months of Halloween parties. Yeah, so. it's, it's crazy. I totally agree with you. I, the big deal for me as a kid for Halloween was spending the months of putting together your, your costume and the little Halloween carnival that you would go to or you could win a goldfish that sadly would die within two weeks, but <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited when you won. And, uh, and yeah, just all building up to that one night, which made it so special. Yeah. Like we never would have met somebody when we were kids. Oh, Halloween's my favorite holiday. And now I meet people all the time, like Halloween's my favorite holiday. And you just want to say, really? (laughs) (laughs) But back to your point, I think, I think that character managed, and you said this, I think it manages to just hit that fine line between the spooky that uh, that people expect. Well, spooky is different now. It, it it's right on that line of like what is now the more aggressive version of Halloween and the old you know style of Disney that that everyone's used to. So I, I think the character probably speaks you know 
a lot to um, you know the current fan uh, more more so than some of the other characters that are in the mansion. Well, she probably wouldn't have. I, I may be wrong in this, but I don't think she would have necessarily been um, thought of or accepted in 1969. Yeah, in a weird yeah. sort of you know whatever whatever you want to call that, but. I, I think that it's an interesting, um, someone asked me that, you know, why do you think they didn't have her back then? And I said, well, I think it was two things. One is, um, and forgive me for saying this, but there, there was, um, uh, obviously a strong bent of chauvinism in the casting of mm-hmm. the characters. If you think about all that, let me put it this way. You think about the classic attractions, think about the voices you heard. They were mostly men. Yep. Um, and most of the lead characters were were men, so it was a wonderful challenge to kind of, to try to come up with how this one how a woman would be speaking and fit into a classic attraction without having a lot of role models to go after and ironically, the mansion of course was a bit of an exception it at least had Madame Leota, who wasn't so much a full fledged character but still a strong presence and a great voice and um and then little Leota at the end. So there were a few things to draw on. And um, I'm, I'm glad that it, for the most part, succeeded because I hope it opened the way for more lead characters who aren't necessarily just male centric, but maybe are more open gender wise in terms of um, representing everybody at the park. Yeah. I think character wise. I think there's been, we're starting to see a trend, I think, to where there's maybe a little bit more balance. I, I know in the, um, I don't know how big this is in California, but they've kind of woven this society of adventurers and explorers into a lot of Adventureland attractions. And they introduced a female member uh, officially to that group named Mary uh, Oceaneer. So uh, it's good. Like, it's good. Like you said, I'd, I'd like to see the rep- more representation of everybody um, in there so everyone can relate to it. And there is that one illusion in the stretch room one of the portraits of the the woman sitting at the grave with the axe in the bust of the husband's head yes that's constance did you know that i didn't know i don't think i knew that yeah that's constance okay that that was the inspiration for how do we make it feel what can we draw on um and the easter egg of that is that in one of the wedding portraits she's holding uh, the rose in exactly the same way that the woman on the gravestone is. So yes, that's actually Constance Hatchaway. Ah. And George was her last husband. Okay. So there we go. So something was there in 69 that managed to like weave its way into it. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Someone else has to ask me a question. Everybody's being so respectful. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Philly. Come on. Oh, that, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Cat's Real got my pressure. tongue. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk, a, let's talk a bit about Toy Story Mania and how you've perfected Joan Cusack's voice. How do you go from, you know, a well-known character that you haven't done the voice for to, you know, I mean, your voice in general is similar to Joan in, in, in a general sense, but how do you then not only do the voice, but also instill the same feelings and, and emotions that the character has, you know, that people are familiar with from the movies. Um, you know, there's, there's gotta be some sort of bridge you have to, you know, 
between the two voices there because if it's totally off and just sounds right you're not going to convey those emotions right maybe i'm not saying it right hopefully you're getting the gist of what i'm asking <laughs> so well you're you're very sweet um my voice my natural voice doesn't sound anything like jones but um but uh to your point uh voice matching celebrity voice matching is one of the things that i'm very fortunate to have been doing for 20 years and um you learn how to map all of the traits um specifically and separate them out and you basically approach you you approach it sort of um reverse engineering everything about the voice that that then gives it its very unique flavor and of course Joan has a wonderfully um fun quirky you know adorable she's got so many isms that are so cool to latch on to and um it was a joy to to try to learn her initially and um like anything you know you get better and stronger with more practice Mm -hmm. but the first the first stage is just listening really hard to whatever someone is bringing to something and with Joan of course she has that wonderful um out of the side of her mouth everything sort of sounds like it's coming out of the side of her mouth and she's got this great list and she's got um sibilance uh her s's are a joy they're hilarious she's got such a fun delivery everything's got kind of this almost snide, sarcastic, you know, like <laughs> in your face kind of delivery. She's so awesome. And, um, and timing, you know, her, her timing is so unique to her in terms of how she throws down words. And when she continues on to the next part of a sentence, cause she's got a very specific, specific way that she'll do that where you think she might be done. And then she nails you with the last part of it. Um, and you just sort of put all of those things together and then just do a lot of rehearsing and practicing until mm-hmm. you feel like you're getting somewhere in the in the range of it. And um, you can never perfectly match a real live person because a real live person is not a robot and they will change things up constantly. And that's what makes them great actors. But for that voice, um, I got very lucky that I was given enough opportunities to keep perfecting it. Mm-hmm. Initially, I'd just been hired to match her for yodeling and singing. And then, yeah. And then it kind of expanded from there. But yeah, she's she's pretty awesome. And that's a lot of different celebrities that I'm fortunate to to match. That's basically what you do is just study study the voice apart from how they look, just really Mm -hmm. focused on the sound and then try to place it somewhere within the mouth and the jaw and the throat and figure out is she more nasal does she have a dialect um initially that was a big mistake i made by the way i went off the assumption since she was a cowgirl mm-hmm. that she had a cowgirl accent and of course that's not true she has joan cusack's accent which is very much midwest chicago so um you can li- i literally had been doing my first few jobs when i suddenly re- you know had this eureka moment of oh shoot i'm not getting the accent right i've been doing cowgirl and she's not Joan speaks with a very specific Chicago accent. Your your explanation of it just, you know, backs up why so many of us cannot do good impressions of people, right? <laughs> it's just so much more to it. Like I've never heard an explanation like you gave to that detail. And I hope our listeners appreciate it. I mean, when they go to the park and they listen for Jesse, knowing it's you that they can't tell the difference. <laughs> you did your job. I it, hope they can. It's, re- it's really interesting because there was a whole entertainment industry 
up until really the eighties where there were these people out there who they, they were impressionists and yeah. rich, rich little and Marilyn Michaels and all these famous oh, yeah. people who made their living doing that. But part and parcel to that is get picking up the inflections and uh, doing a, a vague uh, uh, facial impression of them, which you don't have to do in your line of work. It's more just getting that, that diction down and that, that, uh, that, that voice and the, the, the impression, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, well, you guys are making such good points. One thing that I'm, I like to say out loud, uh, first of all, Im- Im- impersonation is still a huge, you know, obviously Saturday Night Live and mm-hmm. uh, Robin Williams being the king. And it's still a huge art form for, for co- uh, comics in general. But Im- impersonations and impressions are very different from voiceover. And the way I usually explain that is when you do an impersonation, your goal 100% is humor. You're, you're trying to get a laugh. You're trying to make a point and you're doing it through humor and um, everything's exaggerated and heightened. And that's how you know who that is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you're doing a voice match, it's the complete 180 opposite. You're trying so hard to match it so perfectly that it doesn't stand out so that you're not getting attention pulled over to you. Because usually when you're doing voice matching, you're sort of sliding in there sideways hoping that you have an audio illusion so that the audience will buy that it's you so you can't heighten anything and most of my voice matches that I've done you would never recognize in a million years because it's been spliced into a movie or a tv show <laughs> and hopefully if I did my job right you can't tell the difference between who, who it is so and I'm not funny I'm not <laughs> funny the way Robin Williams was funny right. Um, I'm sarcastic, dry funny, but man, you know, that's a gift. Yeah. I could never morph into a million characters within a minute and uh, and do such phenomenal impersonations. That's a real gift. What a fascinating look at this industry, really. I yeah. Mean, Aside of it, you just, you, you know, you take a lot of it for granted, right? You just don't don't think of it this way at all. Uh, how are we doing for your time? Yeah, I'm great. You guys are a blast. Okay. Let's talk more deep history. So <laughs> I can I'll share this with you, a couple of things that may intrigue Walt Disney World um, fanatics is, um, I mean, of course, you guys know a lot because you're the retro, but with regards to the mansion, um, of course, when it came time to build one, uh, and again, you may already, you can shut me up if you're like, yeah, yeah, Kat, we already know this, but this was part of what came into the research. Um, People often ask me, uh, did I like the Eddie Murphy movie? What did I think of the Haunted Mansion Eddie Murphy movie? And I usually say um, that the opening was brilliant. The opening credits were brilliant because it really captured that um, that gothic Southern antebellum masquerade, you know, atmosphere that led to the horrendous, you know, tragedy. If, if the rest of the movie had followed what the initial credits set up, it would have been a brilliant movie. And um, when it came time to putting the mansion into Walt Disney World, there was so much discussion, as you might well guess, as to where are we going to put it? Because we don't have anything that's the equivalent of New Orleans Square. And, right, there's, there's nothing really that was yeah. Um, yeah. where it seamlessly could go. And, event, you know, eventually 
they made this very interesting decision. And it was probably a landmark decision with regards to um, how Walt Disney World was going to handle things moving forward. Um, Pirates, sort of the same, but Pirates was more like, well, we've got so much land, we'll just kind of build a mini Caribbean part. We'll just kind of stick it there. Um, We won't really call it Caribbean land, but the theming of it will sort of look like that. And um, I don't, I I actually don't know. Are there other attractions with close by to pirates that fit into the, I don't think so. Right. It was just, no, it's, it's it's a, you know, a quick service restaurant across the way. Uh, There was a stage where a steel drum band could play, but really it was, it was that attraction by itself. And the bazaar market. Oh yeah. And a shop, of course. Yeah. Yeah, You got to have that. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, it is it, it is very odd because you then have to do that Caribbean to frontier land, you know, transition where the French fry yeah. land used to be. Um, yeah. Which, you know, takes away. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it would definitely was shoehorned in in a different way. Uh, where, do, where do you put it? And if you didn't build it, where, where, which, where would you put it to? The, you know, if you didn't have that. Well, it is plaza. funny that it ends up in Fantasyland in Tokyo because they didn't replicate neither Liberty Square nor New Orleans Square. True, true. So it's just it's the Florida Mansion sitting in Fantasyland for some reason. <laughs> now um, we're getting real deep. I I got yeah, and ju- and just to just to add one more thing to all of that, I was lucky enough for about three months to serve um, in Blue Sky at Imagineering literally right up when I got out of college and I was figuring out, you know, what my next steps were going to be. I took a position um, pretty much as just an assistant at the blue sky department of Imagineering, which was separate from Imagineering, but it, they were, they were in the process of figuring out um, Euro Disney mm-hmm. and literally what got given to me as an assignment. And again, this is way before computers where you could just hop on and find the answer immediately. Um, I was sent to research how they could translate some of the famous lines from Pirates of the Caribbean into the French language so that it would feel the same and say the same thing. And they could not because pirates, pirates as we know them in Western culture are such an American creation Mm. and things like, for example, dead men tell no tales. There literally is no translation in French that comes anywhere close to the meaning of that in America. What we, what we mean by it. And the closest we could get was a person who is dead can't speak. Well, duh. <laughs> I mean, that no romance or sexiness or, you know, adventure. There's nothing in that that's fun or sexy. Yeah. So they had to completely rethink, again, how do we fit a classic attraction and translate it for Europe? And that's played a big part in how they translate any, any, um, famous classic Disney attraction into another culture. I'm still weirded out by, I hope, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. I I think it's very odd that they chose to make the mansion in France, Western Mm. themed. Like why not just make it new Orleans themed? And you know, it's like, wow, (laughs) (laughs) all different. It's not like because it's not like they went to a French version of it. They kind of just went for another American culture. But see, yeah. Ted, if they did it the other way, then they, they would have taken your park and put it over there. By doing it that way, they left your park alone, right? <laughs> they didn't copy your park. <laughs> I still like. I want to sit down with someone and look them in the eye and say, 
but why a Western town? Like, why, why was that the translation? Is there something in French culture that really loves the Western culture? I, Western? I, I, my guess is they didn't have anywhere else to put it. Um, if you, if you, you know, look at the park and the way it's set in the back of Frontierland, there, it's kind of like a dead end. I mean, it is a dead end. You, you, you when you walk back there, it's. It, 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 I was there on a very low crowd day the last time I was there, and it, you, know, you were kind of just off on your own. And all of a sudden, here's Phantom Manor back here. And, but, but, but my my guess is that there was nowhere else to put it based on the lands that they put in there. And, you know, that is another case where they got really story crazy at that time. So they tied it into the story of Thunder Mesa and they tried to take some elements of the ride that was never built in Orlando and put it in there. So the graveyard is now like a big Western graveyard. And yeah, there's all kinds of weird, weird stuff in there. They, they, did, a, they did a whole different take on it. So I guess that, yeah, and this, the story, they completely changed the story too, right? So it's no longer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it's interesting because uh, there are some people that's, you know, say the, like that crop of Imagineers, you know, were dead set against kind of like the Mark Davis style of attractions. But there's a lot of evidence contrary to that. You know, maybe it was just a chance for them to kind of flex their muscles and do something a little different. Uh, rather than just do the same thing over again for a third time or a fourth, yeah, third, a fourth time. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe it was just a chance to kind of put their, their fingerprint on it. Well, to, to go back to the original point, when they, just to feed the, you know, make sure that we satisfy your diehard WDW fans. So when they, when they were trying to figure it out back in the late 60s, early 70s, as to where they were going to put the mansion, um, it's technically not part of any land. I mean, it's sort of off Liberty Square, but it's technically not supposed to be part of Liberty Square. Hmm. Um, even though it is located in upstate New York. So, um, yeah, it's supposed to be, you know, off the Hudson. And um, it's in a place in a different time period on the outside, uh, architecturally, than, than the uh, mansion in Disneyland. So a lot of differences. And to be compassionate and in all fairness, of course, as we all know, they, there was a great deal of scramble to try to put the park together and honor Walt without Walt's vision. So some of what happened wasn't exactly what Walt would have necessarily wanted. This is where I said, I don't want to get anybody upset. <laughs> but, but the history of Imagineering was that there, obviously, it was like, you know, every calling calling all the troops every every man um out and let's get as much done as we possibly can as quickly as possible and of course there were a lot of compromises that got made um i i feel like if you were going to and here i'm speaking way out of turn Mm -hmm. but if you were going to do such a beautiful architectural departure on the outside i feel like it should be reflected on the inside in the storytelling um, because very the whole story of the mansion, all of its backstories, mysterious, fully fleshed or vague or not, were all part of antebellum society. And, and that's why it worked so well as a co- cohesive whole, was that it was all steeped in antebellum deep south. Um, from the, the, you know, the tapestries, the looks, the designs, the costuming were very much uh, a piece of that back history of the mansion 
and now they've just completely done a completely different architectural structure to the mansion, placing it in a different ge geography, which then affects the culture, which then affects, you know, the backstory of the characters, but none of that got altered. So that's true. And a lot of the set decor, even the lamps and things would be not, not, you know, 1790s or even right. early uh, 1800s. It would, it would be much later. Yeah, exactly. And again, this is just the part of me that I guess was a theater major or, you know, a film history buff. But I, I always admired so much of what the original Imagineers did was it was literally from beginning to end, from A to Z, everything fit the theming. You know, everything had to be a whole. And that's why the experience absorbs you. And, you know, fortu fortunately, we don't think too much about it. You go into the mansion and you're happy to abandon yourself to a beautiful story. But it's intriguing to me to think, dare I say, had Walt, you know, had we been blessed to still have Walt leading the charge, would he have altered certain elements of the mansion rather than just picking it up and dropping it right in a different location? Knowing what I've learned from having been lucky enough to transcribe so many interviews from original Imagineers and, and animators over the years, that was one of my college jobs, was transcribing original interviews of these amazing legends. Um, I think he probably would have altered things. He would have found it an opportunity to explore a different haunted uh, story, I think. That but. makes sense. And, and we've certainly heard stories about how the, the attractions in Fantasyland were potentially going to be different. And then in the end, yeah. they were just like, oh, nope, <laughs> just, just take the ones well, to Disneyland. Didn't the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they didn't have the time to develop anything different. But uh, you guys are, are amazing. Does anybody else have any other questions about that you've been dying to ask? Or? <laughs> one, of your, one of your credits listed was Star Tours. Um, where does your voice appear in Star Tours? Well, in a much, so in an earlier version, um, mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to just do some ambient, okay. you know, like you barely notice it. Just literally like some version of some starship operator speaking to someone else, Got you know, it. passing on information. It literally was Walla. And, um, you know, of course, that's, I think they're, probably two versions in from when I first did it. And a lot of times when you record stuff for Imagineering, you just, you don't even know if it's going to make it into the final. They're, they're, they're experimenting with things, playing around with things. It's really just there to, to help them build, build the storyline and to figure things out. And um, I, I feel like it was there for a, certainly long enough that people were saying to me that they heard me. I never heard me. Um, on it but then again i'm usually not listening for myself personally i'm usually just trying to enjoy the ride <laughs> <laughs> um i still get very weirded out going into the mansion because it's still the delightful amazing wonderful yummy experience that you know gothic edgar Allan poe vibe that so hooked me as a kid and gave me nightmares and and then all of a sudden there's this jarring moment where okay, that's me, and that's not supposed <laughs> to be there. And, um, and then we resume with the rest of the, the ride. So there's always a piece of me that gets pulled out of the story because it's my voice. So uh, I, I have been known to sit on it and literally just close my eyes and my ears through the attic just so I can keep the integrity of the experience from the ballroom into the graveyard. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I've done that a couple of times, but um, I think you guys ask such really great questions and I love your passion. Howard knows that I just really admire what you guys do and, um, you know, thank God for people like you doing the hard work to make sure that so much of the legacies and original intentions and history is maintained. I, I fight like heck for it on the Disneyland side of things every day, <laughs> trying to educate people about the importance of the details. And um, my Twitter, my Twitter feed is as poor Howard knows is die hard in the mornings. You know, the first, the first drop of the day is something very historically sound and hopefully beautifully rendered that really gives people insight as to the amount of detail and passion and hard work that went into the astonishing uh, attractions that we enjoy. That is true. Actually, why don't you take a second and tell people where they can find you on social media? Because you are a great follow for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Kat Cressida, just my name. K-A-T-C-R-E-S-S-I-D-A. And on uh, on Instagram, it's the same. On Facebook, it just has a dot between my first and last name for my fan page, but um, Twitter's where I tend to be the most active throughout the day. Um, although I definitely enjoy sharing cool things on Instagram as well. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on because it's these small, as you pointed out, the details and the smaller stories. You know, a lot of the larger Imagineers and uh, you know larger figures over the years have been interviewed ad nauseum, but the small little stories like this is really what brings the details to the park and and to the attraction. Um, So yourself and other lesser known Imagineers and and, and artists that have done all the work over the years, you know, that's really what we're trying to do here is is let, let you tell your story and let people hear it. So they know the true history of it. So we really do. Yeah. And now we can fight for your history for the next 50 or 60 years. Exactly. Because you will be an available <laughs> part of the Haunted Mansion now and when all of us are gone. That's right. That's right. There are going to be people go, no, go back and listen to episode 59 and a half. <laughs> back in 2020, they talked to her. So Kat, thank you very much for joining yeah. us. We really appreciate you. What a, you know, great stories going all the way back to Disneyland and your time there with your father and everything. So really appreciate you coming on the show and giving us all the background. No, it was such an honor. Thank, thank, thanks to, ugh, I do voiceover for a living. Thanks to you guys for, uh, you know, arranging for this and for doing all you do for Walt Disney World fans. I think that they're, it's an extraordinary gift and they're very lucky to have you. So thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank and you. next time you're in Philly, the cheesesteak's on me. All right. All right, cheesesteak. <laughs> all right, Kat. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, well, hopefully we'll, we'll sync up at some other time and uh, stay safe. And thanks again. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Night. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen. And on the web, at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT. 
on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. Hurry back.